<clears throat> okay, friends, the story begins. We are on the bottom of page 42. We are continuing with the Shema, the second paragraph of the Shema. The second paragraph of the Shema has two themes. The value of mitzvahs, mitzvah observance, and the reward and punishment for observance and its neglect, or for faith in its neglect as well. Let's take a step back. The Talmud, Tractate Brachus, second chapter, asks why the first paragraph, why is the Shema in the order that it is? I mean, one reason is because that's the order as it appears in the Torah, besides for the third paragraph. But why is it in the order that it is? There's special significance. The Talmud says prior to adhering and committing to God's commandments, which is the second paragraph, you first have to commit to God. Commandments don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in the context of their commander. So we start off with the Shema. We internalize, we listen, we hear that God is one. We love this God. That's the Shema. That's the first paragraph of the Shema. We then segue to the second paragraph of the Shema, which says, take a look at the bottom of the page, bottom of page 42. We're not going to read the whole thing right now. And it will be if you will diligently obey my commandments, which I enjoin upon you this day, which is to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. I will give you, so if we do this, if we commit to God, if we commit to the commandments, I will give rain for your land at the proper time. You're going to get rewarded. The early rain and the late rain, and you'll gather in your grain, your wine, your oil, you'll have sustenance. I will give grass to your fields for your cattle, and you'll eat and be sated. Take care lest your heart, now that comes the negative, right? Take care lest your heart be lured away. Be careful uh, of temptation. And you turn astray and worship alien gods and bow down to them. For then the Lord's wrath will flare up against you. And he will close the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the earth will not yield its produce. And you'll swiftly, swiftly perish from the good land which the Lord gives you. Okay. So we spoke about earlier the mitzvah to love God to believe that God is one, to internalize that God is totally one and relevant, and now his commandments and what happens if we do and if we don't adhere. And the message is, this is so important. Commandments are valuable in context of their commander. Without a commander, the commandments are, are irrelevant. Which means in English, Judaism is not just tradition it's not just a culture it's more than just a culture going back to the story of hanukkah the the greatest what, what there's a there's a common misconception the greeks wanted to stop us from adhering to our jewish values it's not true they were totally fine with us practicing judaism everybody gets up and says that hanukkah is about religious freedom and religious liberty it's not true they were totally fine with us practicing Judaism. So long as it was a godless Judaism, it was a culture. So long as it had nothing to do with anything meaningful, it was just sentimental. 
right? You have turkey on Thanksgiving. We also eat matzah on Pas- it's, it's a significance. The Greeks were fine with that. And the message of the Shema is prior to it committing to mitzvahs, we say God is one. Because mitzvahs are valuable in the context of their commander. Which means we're not serving commandments. We're not serving what we do. We're serving whom we perform for. This is very, very important. And I'll tell you why this is so important. And I'm going to open a big can of worms. I was deciding, should I do it? Should I not do it? I already did it too late. <laughs> There's no going back, right? <laughs> People take exception to gender roles in Judaism. And how there's a lack of egalitarianism, egalitarianism, how do we pronounce this word? Egalitarianism, there we go. Say that six times fast. There's a lack of equality. And the problem is, that's true if you're serving things. Why don't we all get to do these things? If the synagogue becomes my God, well, this God should be for everybody, right? (laughs) If reading of the Torah becomes my God, why can't both men and women take part in God because reading the Torah is God, right? That became God. No, that's not God. That's a service to God. And everybody has their own service to God. The moment we serve things, we start inventing our own Judaism and it becomes very dangerous. If you take a look at the, this week's Torah portion, we read about the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, a quite dramatic event, event, a quite inspirational event, and then what happens several weeks later? The golden calf. And what's Moses' reaction to the golden calf? He breaks the tablets. And commentaries wonder why he breaks the tablets. Since there's, there's reasons, there's explanations, there's significance. And th- there's a good reason why he broke those tablets. But why did he have to break them? Why couldn't he hide them, put them away? So one explanation is he saw that the Jews were serving things. And serving a calf is just as bad as serving tablets. You're not serving God. He broke the tablets. Because we're not slaves to the commandments. We're slaves or servants to the commander. This is this is essentially, this is the most important message of the second paragraph of the Shema. We're committing to commandments. But we've first committed to God. We first committed to the commander. You know what it's like? <laughs> it's like planning a huge anniversary celebration. But you totally forgot about your spouse. <laughs> you totally forgot to invite them, <laughs> tell them about it. You didn't take them into account. You got so excited about the party you're making for them, you forgot about them, right? <laughs> we get so excited about the culture and observance of Judaism, we forget about the commander. And it's like, it's totally missing the point. The, the whole, I, I, I'm opening this can of worms, I'm doing it. This whole egalitarianism movement of why can't Judaism be like this? And Judaism is not Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> We're not serving and creating Judaism. There's a God and God wants something different from everybody. And this is the God we're going to serve. And this is how we're going to serve him. If you look in the Beit HaMikdash, the service in the temple, 
every single day you had a service called the Nisuch Hayayin, which means the wine libations. Post-service, post, um, after, after the korbanot, after the sacrifices, they would pour wine on the altar. There's actually a special drain on the altar where it would go. And what that represents, wine represents a flavor. There's a flavor to Judaism. You should experience the flavors of Judaism. It should feel good. But before you pour the wine, before you experience the flavor of Judaism, you got to first sprinkle the blood on the altar. You got to first focus your passion. Blood is passion. It's your vitality. First focus your vitality toward God. Then you could experience the beauty. But if our focus, if we're worshiping the beauty of Judaism and not its God, we've missed the point. <clears throat> Make sense? Yes. This takes us to the next or similar topic, a similar note. In this paragraph of the Shema, there was a story that I felt coming and I missed it. <laughs> Remember that happened? There was a story that was about to come and I just missed it. I know, I know. There's a, there's a relevant, okay, trust me, there's a relevant story here. <laughs> there's, a, there's a relevant story here. Okay, we'll come up soon. Actually, I have one question. Go for it. Um, so, there's a lot of mention of rain but i don't see the word geshem in the hebrew good question there are there's different words for rain synonyms for rain okay i thought that might be the case yeah I'm not familiar yeah. with them. if you look on the last uh the third line the last line on 42 the second to last word is matar matar, matar is rain we have it also in the Yamida Tal or Matar Livracha. Oh, yeah. So now we talk about reward and punishment. Right? And the example or the euphemism that's used is rain. Not not, not to deduct or not to, to um, detract from the literal God is going to give us rain, God is going to give us food. But we're in the broader sense, there's the reward and punishment. Reward and punishment is its an interesting thing because it's a very important part of Judaism. In fact, Maimonides wrote what's called the 13 principles of, of Jewish faith, the 13 fundamentals of faith. He writes this in his introduction to his commentary in Tractate um, Sanhedrin of the, of the Mishnah of the Talmud. In his introduction, he writes 13 fundamental principles of Judaism. There's a lot of things we believe in in Judaism. But he says, in order to be uh, uh, to practice Judaism properly, these 13 principal beliefs are unnegotiable. One God, a continuous, relevant Torah that doesn't expire, right? Fundamental beliefs. And one of them are reward and punishment. God rewards us for the good we do, and he punishes us for the bad that we do. This requires a lot of context. 
Because if we don't understand this properly, Judaism can become very cheap. We don't want Judaism to become cheap. A couple of nights ago, um, we had a big Friday night dinner at Chabad, Tubishvat dinner. And uh, somebody in the community asked me a question. He wanted to know why you can have food on a hot plate from before Shabbat cooking into Shabbat, like a cholent, for example. So why can't you leave Zoom on before Shabbat and have Zoom on? And I went through the explanation and then and then we ended up talking, I came giving extra details, but we ended up talking about various details in other parts of Jewish law. So he said, is, he asked me a specific question, is this and this permitted? I said, look, technically it's permitted, but this wouldn't be in the spirit of Shabbos. So he says, so what you're saying is you could you shouldn't do it, but you won't go to hell. I said, it's it's not about hell. It's just it's what you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> what does hell have to do with anything? We do believe in hell. But what but I, I thought that was an insightful comment because he was thinking that my motivation to move all the way to Pleasanton out of a Jewish community <laughs> and the sacrifice that hundreds and thousands of Chabad rabbis and, and, and Jews all over the world, their motivation is heaven and hell. If I do this, I'll go to heaven. If I don't do this, I'm going to go to hell. It's fear. That's not our motivation. Sometimes fear is a good motivator. It's not a long, it's not a sustainable motivator. We do stuff to stay out of hell. And if we do stuff to go into heaven, if we do things for reward, that's fear. Maimonides calls that fear because you're afraid of what you're not going to get. We call that in, in modern times FOMO, fear of missing out, but it's fear. Serving God out of love is more altruistic. So where does reward and punishment fit into the picture here? The way Judaism understands reward and punishment is actually is you know a better a better um word is actually consequence positive and negative consequences so you go to work you get your paycheck you're not rewarded for the work you did you produced money or if you have a business right you sold something you got money you produced money it wasn't a reward as much as a natural consequence the natural consequence of doing good is goodness the natural consequence of doing bad is experiencing negativity. Now, we don't always know what's good and bad. So that doesn't mean that we're always bad if something's bad is happening to us necessarily. And that could get confusing. And that, that is a big can of worms on, it, on its own right. But if you look at the words here, if you do good, I'll give you rain. If not, I won't give you rain. I'll drive you out of your land. It sounds like a threat. It does sound threatening. But it doesn't have to be understood that way. Um, yeah, go for it. So, so I'm going to put the mic here. I don't know if everybody can hear you. Well, this whole discussion ha has me asking a lot of questions, which I was going to save till after we stop. But just, just, just you said drive you from your land. Where is that right here? Because I don't, I don't see it in the English anyways. Um, I, may, I may have... Uh... And, um, and it kind of plays into my other questions, really, because drive you from your land is like an active, uh, 
it's an active action, you know, as opposed to I I, I always when when you said uh, when you started talking about consequences, right? That that that, that uh, sounded that felt more in line with what my what I previously exactly. understood because it, you know I kind of looked at this as either God is facing you or He's not facing you. When He's facing you, you 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 know you're getting the, the positivity side of you know the rewards you're calling them, right? But if you do something evil, then and and um and I think it, it's it's translated. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like um, opposite of God's face. I, you know, it's not like He turns His back on you. He turns right. away from you. Right. And as a result of Him turning away from you, then He's no longer providing positivity for you, which results in the negative consequences. Right. So when you talk about consequences, that makes sense. But even when you started to talk, well, I'll save the heaven and hell thing for afterwards. But it's um. In, in in terms of like actively doing something like driving the people out um, as opposed to no longer protecting them therefore they are driven out right, they're, they're, right. what god's doing one of those if you say he's, god's driving you out no he he's 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 decided he's not going to support you at a particular moment and then you were overrun by somebody else as a result of him not protecting so that's different that you know god's either actively doing it or god is not protecting you and something else is Right, as a result of him not protecting us. So I'll, I'll tell you where you see this idea, actually, is in the story of Purim, the Megillah. The story of Purim is actually a perfect example of this. You may remember this from Tractate Megillah, from studying Tractate Megillah, where the Talmud there asks, you know, Haman wanted to kill the Jewish people, right? And the simple explanation is that you've got this anti-Semite, but, but we know that there's always a deeper reason. And the Talmud asks, what was the deeper reason? What did we do wrong? Somehow it comes back to us, right? The temple was destroyed. We did something wrong. Okay, the Babylonians didn't like us. But we did something wrong to, for God to allow this to happen. What did, Which is a scary statement, by the way, and not a popular statement. <laughs> I guess we could call this the unpopular. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what did we do wrong in the story of Purim? That God would allow Haman to destroy his people. We must have been really bad. And the Talmud answers, yeah, you were pretty bad. We went to the feast. <laughs> what? Remember, we went to the feast. Ahasuerus made this big feast celebrating his monarchy. We went to the feast. Shouldn't have gone to that feast. Okay, so I went out to dinner with the wrong people, and now I'm going to die for it. We're going to get destroyed. We're going to destroy innocent women and children who didn't go. Women probably went, but children children had babysitters. Children who didn't go? It doesn't seem fair. One explanation is that not that they went to the feast. They enjoyed the feast. You shouldn't have enjoyed it. What's wrong with that feast, by the way? You know what was wrong with that feast? If you look at the historical context of when Purim took place, it took place between the 70 years of Temple Number 1 and Temple, temple Number 2. It was supposed to be a 70-year exile. It was. After the end of 70 years, Ezra brought everybody back up. Ahasuerus was a king. He was not a wise king. And he knew there was supposed to be a 70-year exile. That was the prophecy. And he was familiar with that prophecy. And he miscalculated. He thought the 70 years were up. A bunch of people miscalculated. Right. 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 We have, people were not good at math back in the day, right? The, the IRS would not have been happy. So, <laughs> he thought the 70 years were up. So he made a big celebration. 
That was the celebration, the story of Purim that the Megillah starts with, where Ahasuerus makes this huge 120-day celebration. It was celebrating the fact that the Jews are not going back into Israel, and this is an eternal exile. He was excited because that means I'm in charge. Now the Jews aren't. He makes this big party. And at the party, he's wearing the Kohen Gadol's garments. That's a big slap in the face. He's serving wine, fine wine, out of the wine libating vessels of the temple. This is a big slap in the face to Judaism. The fact that Jews felt that they needed to be there, that's a problem. Because who do we trust? We felt that diplomatically it's going to help to go there. That's a slap in the face to God. We think our diplomatic intervention is going to help us more than our connection to God is. When this diplomatic intervention is a slap in the face to God. So you know what God did? I'm not punishing you for this. I'm just, you don't believe you need my protection? You want to rely on your diploma, on your diplomacy? So be it. Go for it. God didn't punish us. He just said, I'm rely on your diplomacy. If that's what you want to do, go for it. And what's the natural result of that if we don't have God's protection? Right? The natural result was we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to the Hamans of the world if we're not relying on God. The Baal Shem Tov taught something fascinating. The Baal Shem Tov taught that in heaven, when they want to punish someone, you know what they do? He says, there's no punishments. They just make it harder for you to trust in God. The natural result of not trusting in God is vulnerability. We become vulnerable to all sorts of negative issues. So God's saying that he's going to, I use the word dry from the land, and the English translation says something different. It said, you'll swiftly perish from the good land which God gives you. It, it's, it's not so much a punishment, but a natural result of us turning away from God. It's not that you turned away from God, let me throw my lightning bolts at you. <laughs> It's you turn away from God, you've cut your, you've unplugged. You're expecting to get electricity to get vitality, you unplugged. Obviously, we're always connected to God, but, but you've unplugged. You got to plug back in. If you want to connect, you got to plug back in. That, and we, we know that from the story of Purim. I was just about to share something and it slipped my mind. I didn't have enough Diet Coke yet. I don't know. It slipped my mind. I think that was actually a pretty excellent point um, that, I mean, it seems natural that a punishment of vulnerability um, would be the case of disconnecting from Hashem. I actually really like that. Right. In, in, in other words, the, the default is if you're connected, you got nothing, you, you should have nothing to worry about, which is what B'tachon is, right? The feeling of security, the feeling of trusting in God. There's nothing to worry about because we're connected. And and if we're in the moment we compromise on our values, we turn to other gods, whether that mean diplomacy, whether that mean worshiping our uh our our employment or whatever that might be. The moment that doesn't mean we shouldn't have employment, but the moment we start worshiping other gods, God says, Are you trying to say that you don't need me? Okay, <laughs> we don't want to give off that message. I'll tell you something fascinating. El Al, Israel's airline, um, it was recent. It used to be owned by the government. Up until recently, it was just bought by a by an observant Jew. He bought El Al, 
And he actually did something fascinating. He he put a minion schedule <laughs> on all the flights so that people know what to expect. But prior to him buying it, I remember about 10 years ago, El Al doesn't fly on Shabbos. They decided that they were low on cash or what, for whatever reason, they're going to start flying on Shabbos. And many rabbis were saying that we need to boycott El Al and not fly them. There's other airlines. There's other airlines that fly on Shabbos, but they're not Jewish. That's fine. <laughs> take British Airways or whatever it is. Don't take El Al. Why? Why is boycott the right approach? So they're not religious. We're going to start boycotting anybody who's not religious? Like, come on. No, no, that's not the point. This is a Jewish airline. This is one of the safest airlines. But there's a reason why it's the safest airline. It's not just because they have Israeli masterminds running the security. They're following... They're connected. They're plugged in. Of course, they're going to be safe. The moment they unplug and they think that they need, they're going to make more money because they're going to work on Shabbos. How are they going to have that protection? How is it safe to fly alone? Which is a, an, an amazing perspective, a faithful perspective, a very honest perspective. So it seems like after the. Uh fall of the second temple there was a major disconnection right from being being able to see the presence of god yeah it, essentially exile you know the jews went back to the second temple but it wasn't the same as the first the spiritual energy the miracles that took place wasn't the same and certainly within that period of exile it was very even though it was biblical times by the way there was prophets at the time. You had Mordechai. You had, this was still the biblical era. You look at our time chart on the timeline of, that we had for JLI. It's still the biblical era. But it was exile. It wasn't the, the spiritual connection was not natural. It's something they really had to intentionally believe in. They had this temptation of choosing diplomacy. And they actually fell for that temptation of choosing diplomacy over their connection with God. Bottom line is you gotta our sustenance comes from God. We can't forget where our blessings come from, where our security comes from, where our safety comes from. The moment we desire for it to come from somewhere, someone else, somewhere else, it's it's a very scary thing. There's a book called Shar Habitachon. There's a book called called um probably gonna learn about it in a few lessons from now in our JLI class. It's called Chovot Halavavot, Duties of the Heart. It's a book that articulates how to connect to God emotionally because up until then this was authored in the probably the 10th century maybe 9th century and you had Talmud and you had all these various works on Jewish law but how do we connect to God emotionally we know how to connect to God physically how do we connect emotionally so he wrote duties of the heart and one of the sections in duties of the heart is called the gate of trust it talks about how to trust in God if anybody suffers from anxiety read this part read this book it's great. And in the introduction, he says something fascinating. He says, we we naturally um, look for things to connect to, to help us build a sense of inner security. Whether it be finances, whether it be physical strength, 
whether it be diplomacy or popularity, we're always looking for things to make us feel secure. And he says that's very dangerous because you're only going to be as strong as what your security is. If you're as strong as your finances, what happens when your finances go? Right? What if there's an, what if there's a the economy dips? If you're as strong as your physical strength, what if you become un- ambulatory? What if you can't move anymore? Where's your security? If you're as strong as your mental health, my things always. But if our strength is in God and he gives us our financial security and he gives us our physical strength and he gives us our physical safety and diplomacy, God's not going anywhere. We have the trust muscle. It's there. We might as well invest it in the right thing. And, and that's essentially what reward and punishment is. It's, it's what are we plugging into? So it's not that I'm throwing lightning bolts at you. I'm mad at you because you did idolatry. No, the natural result is we're going to isolate ourselves from these blessings that we have the ability to naturally align ourselves with. So another thing, he um, says, take care lest your heart be lured away and you turn astray and worship alien gods. Seems like these days people worship nothing they have asked and, and it's not that they have left god and gone to alien gods it's that they've left god and they've gone to nothing they right perhaps or, the alien gods have taken other forms i was gonna say you know used to be stone and not and, and gold you know now it's <laughs> well i was gonna say you know maybe they're, well in the sharp when it talks yeah, about comparisons to the alchemist um I mean, it seems to me like in modern society, there's lots of different versions of alchemy. Yeah, yeah. You know, people people are serving profession. People are serving, you know, they believe that's where their money's coming from instead of that's where their money's coming through. People are serving fitness. <laughs> people are they serving... Worship, they worship long life also because they... If you don't believe there's anything afterwards, you worship life. Yeah, people worship existence instead of the meaning of existence, essentially. I had a very interesting experience the other day with somebody at work. We were talking about, I forget what we were, excuse me. We were talking about death, and this person said to me, he's like, well, when I die, there's nothing. And I'm like, well, how how do you know that? He's like, well... And I'll be fine. He's like, I was fine for billions of years before my life, and I'll be fine <laughs> for a billion year, years after my life. And I thought, wow, that's a very interesting perspective. But it's it's kind of a depressing. Uh, it's very he, depressing. He, he admitted that he believed yeah. in the before life and the afterlife. Yeah, I know, but it was just a very actually. That's what I thought. It was very bleak. It's it, it's the irony of. Uh... The irony of, is, is that, that that type of thought process is a form of faith. And it's just a mis- exer- misguided faith muscle. <laughs> the faith <laughs> muscle is there. <laughs> it, really, it really is. This brings us to our next point in the Shema, in this portion of the Shema. You'll notice, besides for the content of paragraph number one and paragraph number two of the Shema, 
there's something a little bit more fundamental that also differentiates the two. Um, and the, the, the truth is, you've heard me say this before, but translations are limiting and dangerous. You can't really tell the difference too much in the English translation, but you can in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the first paragraph, take a look on the middle of 42. I'm going to read the Hebrew, just a couple of words. Ohafta, you should love. Et Hashem Elokecha, the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. It says you, the Ahavta, in the singular. In English, you in the singular and you in the plural are the same, but in Hebrew they're different. So in Hebrew it says you shall love God in the singular. It's talking to you as an individual. Paragraph number two, I'm going to read in the Hebrew. Just the first couple of lines. V'hayha, and it will be, Im if you will diligently listen. El mitzvotai, to my commandments, Hashar Anochi, which I mitzaveh etchem, which I command you, in the plural, Hayom today. I'm commanding you in the plural. The first paragraph, I'm commanding you in the singular. The second paragraph, I'm commanding you in the plural. And commentaries point out the significance of this difference. Again, the theme of the first paragraph is I'm connecting to God. The theme of the second paragraph, I'm connecting to his mitzvahs. And mitzvahs need to be in the context of their commander. Can't get lost in the commandments and forget about the commander. When it comes to my personal connection with God, there is an element of individuality to it. The Shema is a very individual thing. There is an objectivity to it because it's the soul. But we cover our eyes. We're not looking at each other. It's me and my own personal relationship with God. My own personal connection to God. When it comes to mitzvahs, which is the second paragraph, we're one large unit. We're all the same. Which, think about it. There's five of us in this Zoom room. And if we were all to describe what it means to believe in one God, to describe our emotional experience of the Shema, we're going to get five different descriptions, five different explanations, because we're all different people inside. But we all put on tefillin. That's all the same by all of us. We all eat matzah. Externally, well, the, the action is the same. Our connection to commandments are actually the same. Our connection to the commander is quite different. So the Shema, the first paragraph, highlights our individuality. But when it comes to commandments, there's a uniting factor. There is us as a community. But here's the fascinating point that I want to leave you with. The way you, again, the order of the paragraphs are of great significance as well. How do you connect together as a community? By connecting to God as an individual. If we mature our relationship with God, that should influence how we connect to, to each other. If I'm saying the Shema properly, that should influence how I connect with other people. That should have a very strong influence in how I connect to the other people. That's why this is fascinating. This is interesting. The very first Mishnah that the whole compendium of 63 volumes of Tom would start with talks about when you're supposed to say the Shema, right? And how you're supposed to say the Shema. 
How are you supposed to develop your individual connection with God? How does the Talmud, 63 tractates, conclude with a Mishnah that teaches that the only place where God can find blessing is within peace? You will only find God's blessing is within peace, connection with each other. To have connection with each other, there has to be a proper Shema, an individual connection to God. And the reason is because we know this from chapter 32 of Tanya. When we're soul-oriented, everything fits into place. When we're body-oriented, we're all individuals. We're all different. We don't get along. But when we're soul-oriented, souls unite by default. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>